the Hayes Exchange. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Hayes Exchange, the podcast where we bring you diverse spaces and global spaces. Today, it is a great honor to have Vannery Kong. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, when Calvin and I think about global citizenship, we absolutely think about people like Vannery who exhibit the attributes that she has. I mean, whether it's interfacing with multilateral organizations like the U.S. Trade Representative, the White House, the Department of State, the United Nations, the world. I mean, the list goes on and on. <laughs> and then more than that, you know, also your your work with Harvard University and your, your connection with them is also super commendable. And we think that's what makes you such a great role model for young people who want to become global citizens. What Calvin and I have found in our lives is that behind all the accolades, there's always a really rich journey. And that's what we hope to, to kind of expose today, just a little bit more about you. And your journey begins with a very American narrative, one that we think touches on diversity. You have a mother from Cambodia and a father who's African-American. And then you grew up in a place like Indiana. As we get started with the podcast, just talk about your early years navigating those identities that don't only talk about racial and ethnic you know, maybe differences, but even carry their own faith traditions. How did you navigate those identities in a space like Indiana? And then how did you use those identities to end up uh, in a global stage? No, sure. First of all, Kendall and uh, Calvin, it was so great to meet you all. And thank you for allowing me to be a part of your journey. I think that this is a great initiative and I'm so happy that you allowed me to be, take part in this. But um, yeah, I just, I remember growing up, um, my parents, you know, they were, they were married. I went up, uh, ended up going to parochial school. Um, uh, my parents ended up getting divorced. So I remember every other weekend when I wasn't with my father, my mother would travel to this really tiny town in Indiana called Elkhart where the Amish lived. So I remember going, um, from Indianapolis, just kind of driving and seeing all the farms and everything. And, um, my grandfather used to always tell me when I was five, he would tell me at a very early stage about the war. And I remember my grandma and my mother saying, oh, she's too young to know why we're here. And so my grandfather and my grandmother eventually got on the same page. They're like, no, she needs to know. She needs to know why she needs to do well in school. She needs to know why we chose to come to the U.S. But my grandfather would share stories about how he was tortured by the Khmer Rouge for two weeks how they had to like walk on foot through the jungles of Cambodia. And then um, there is this refugee camp that most of the Cambodians that came to the U.S. went to called Khao Edong and um, how they got there when it was first built by the United Nations, um, UNHCR. That's from there, the Catholic Relief Services brought them to Chicago. And then from there, there was like a factory that had like a lot of job openings. So that's how they ended up in Elkhart, Indiana. But my father or my grandfather started sharing this story and this narrative. And then once my mother um, remarried, there was just this whole like having to balance multiple cultures. But something that I particularly struggled with is something that we all talked about is representation, whether it's in foreign policy, because when um, the U.S. talks about the Asian narrative, they only focus on the lighter skin Asian culture. So I didn't have representation like we as we have today. So it was really, really um, something that I struggled with because when I would tell people in Indiana that I was Khmer or I was half Cambodian, 
they would say that country doesn't exist. There's only one Asian country, you know, it's Indiana. So they'll say, oh, it's either China, Japan, Korea. They don't know um, anything south of China. So that was honestly um, really interesting as well. And then, so I ended up going to um, Indiana University, but the location of Indianapolis, because unfortunately, um, the HBCs I did apply for, I got accepted, but the, it was not in the not in the finances to go. So I ended up going to um, IU and I was a political science major. I remember having to battle my parents because Indiana is very large on like the medical field and engineering. Yeah. So I remember picking political science, being the only student of color in all my classrooms, going to a PWI. Um, one thing I definitely appreciated, though, is that um, even though we were in the Indianapolis, they, they, the school attempted to try to highlight multiple cultures. And we did, we had a lot of, we had a lot of different cultures at IU, but I felt like they were, when the school highlights like certain cultures, they pick the stereotypical um, student that they feel best fits the mold. Like there were times where we would try to bring an Asian sorority, but they didn't want it led by like a black girl. So um, the leadership transition had to change for me to someone else as well. So, uh, but you know, it just wasn't in the cars for me to go Greek, which is fine. But yeah, so yeah, the growing up, like I was the only person, only student of color. And there wasn't really a lot of Black people on campus or Asians for that matter, saying that they wanted to work for multilateral organizations. And at the time, that's what I thought what being in foreign policy is. So yeah, everything you can think of about Indiana, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's it exists. Um, you know, IU Bloomington is like a f- hour to 45 minutes, depending on how fast you drive. Like sometimes you'll see clan members when you're driving. So it's one of those times where you have to get gas in Indianapolis and don't stop, just keep going or have some in your car. But I definitely faced a lot of racism on campus as well, whether it's from professors calling me the N-word to other Asian uh, racism from other Asian groups, because, you know, we have the intercultural racism as well and being one of only few Cambodians as well and the negative stereotypes that Cambodians have in the Asian diaspora as well. But um, I used to get told all the time that I was never going to make it in foreign policy, wasn't smart enough whether it's from peers or colleagues, family members. And eventually what I ended up doing was, I don't know, I, I guess I call it following your heart. I interned actually for the same agency that brought my family to the U.S. So I my first internship was with Catholic Charities. I interned, he's actually still our mayor, but when Joe Hoxett was running, uh, first running for Indian uh, for the Indianapolis mayor, interned with him to voter registration. Then I um, also interned for the International Center Indianapolis. So I do speak uh, Mandarin. And then my last internship was actually when Mike Pence was still our, um, our governor. Um, but yeah, I interned for the Department of Education. I actually didn't intern that long because my boss got voted out of office. And I wish the, you know, the Republicans would have kept me because people were getting class credits for the internship. But, you know, God had bigger plans. And I don't want to say, unfortunately, because I learned so much about myself and just like the grit, but I was homeless. Um, there was a time where my family didn't support me and, you know, working three jobs, living, uh, living in your car, couch surfing, um, going to uh, the food pantries you know, I definitely went through all that as well. Um, but like I said, I, I learned who my friends were. I learned a lot about myself and I just had this dream and I just wasn't going to stop because there was nothing else. I didn't want to do nursing, didn't want to be a dentist. I didn't uh, want to do engineering. Once my internship 
ended at the Indiana State House, that's when the United Nations said, hey, we want you to intern for us in the headquarters. And I became the first, I, I think the, the only as well, the first and only IU student to ever intern at the UN in New York. And um, it was my first apartment coming out of homelessness. I lived in downtown Manhattan. It was very beautiful. I lived right by the river. Times Square was like a 10 minute walk. There was all these beautiful shopping centers. Fifth Avenue was there. It was literally a dream. And sometimes I had to pinch myself like, oh my God, is this really happening? But part of the UN's paperwork, this is how I ended up getting paid because you're working 40 hours a week and it's New York rent. But for one of the papers that you kind of have to like the onboarding process, you had to get a physical from like a doctor to make sure you don't carry any diseases. And I remember I went to one of these minute clinics. There's this, uh, we have townships in Indianapolis, but I went to this clinic in Pike Township. I remember, I don't even know how the doctor and I even got on this topic, but I started like telling her my story. She was asking me questions and I was telling her, I said, yeah, I got this internship from the UN and I'm not going to be able to go. And I remember being so sad and she goes, oh, I'll pay for it. I have my own 501c3. Um, Just send me a resume. And then she did my physical and signed off on the last paper I needed for um, the UN as well. So that's how I ended up getting it paid for. But yeah, I remember coming back from the UN and not really being able to find a job in Indianapolis. Like I had to take a job at a car dealership just to pay off college so I can um, try to register for like my last couple of courses as well. But I ended up going into AmeriCorps for about six months and... I was at the time, I was like a UN youth ambassador for um, an NGO called Save Cambodia. And I remember we were building a boarding school and one of my jobs was to fundraise for it. So I remember giving a presentation at Harvard for one of those like social entrepreneurship summits. And I didn't even really know what it was. And at the time, I I wasn't going to go because I had a couple of friends that were AKAs at Howard and I'd never been to an HBCU homecoming. And I'm like, guys, should I go to Howard? Should I go to Harvard? Which one should I go to? (laughs) And then my friends yelled at me. They're like, Banner, of course you're going to go present at Harvard. Howard's homecoming is going to be every year. But I ended up going to to Harvard and ended up doing really well. I ended up meeting um, someone who encouraged me to apply. And I ended up getting a job out here in the DMV area. So I work for a DOD contractor in a cybersecurity firm called Granicus. And it was, I don't know, there's something magical about DC that you won't know until you actually come out here, especially once you learn how to like really find yourself because it's a different world and having to adjust to the East Coast as well, because getting connected to orgs like Black Professionals in International Affairs and Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, I think I really got a chance to really um, experience what it meant to be in foreign policy once I got involved with the G20 and G7 summits. It was a really great experience, honestly. I would encourage anyone, if you're between the ages of 18 and 35, to apply um, as long as you're not a government worker. But uh, my experience in Asia itself, outside of just visiting my family, was also an experience in itself. Oh, my God. Wow. I think you definitely embody what it means to take advantage of opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about the G20 and being a youth delegate? What was that like? And talk about your experience working with delegates from other countries. Yes. So overall, it was a really great experience. I remember getting my um, email um, at work and I remember breaking down crying to my um, account executive. And she was also one of the only few Blacks that worked in cyber, like in the federal markets as well. So yeah, I remember getting the, um, the email 
And then from there, we had trainings we had to go do. So the Council of Foreign Relations had their um, Diversity and International Affairs Conference. And, and then uh, we actually got to have trainings at the White House and the Department of State with those that were involved with the G20, G7, the different Sherpas. And it's interesting how the other countries chooses their youth delegates because some of them are choosing, chosen directly by the government and some of them are chosen by NGOs like the U.S. and Canada and the U.K., um, we were told it's just, you know, you're going to make lifelong friends, you know, you're going to really enjoy this. So I definitely took it to heart. And I remember I had to write a policy proposal on international trade. And I knew a little bit about it, but I went to, I don't even know what it's called. It's not like, it's kind of like a mock trial, but it was at George Washington University. And I ended up meeting one of Obama's like appointed trade representatives who helped me write my trade proposal on IP protection because the proposal had to be 30 words. So I'm sitting there thinking like, how are you going to summarize all of U.S. foreign policy in 30 words? So I remember I written it, I sent, I sent it off. And it was interesting because a lot of the Japanese organizing committees, a lot of them either went to Georgetown or, or Harvard Business School. So some of them were actually here. So we got to meet them. Yeah. So from there, it was a free, it was a free trip. It was great. I got to, you know, I got to pay for it, got a week off from work. I got there a day early and I had some friends from IU that let me just crash at their place because my hotel couldn't get there a day early. So I went to Disney World, <laughs> got to explore. But I think the most interesting part was uh, when, you come, when you talk about the role of colorism, where it plays in Asia, because they kept asking me like, oh, do you eat hamburgers and hot dogs every day? That was the question I got. And I said, no, I eat Cambodian food every day. That's what I'm, I grow up eating. I said, sometimes I would eat American food because sometimes my dad would ask for it or my stepfather. But I think the way that they looked at me, because they wanted to say I didn't look Asian, but everyone in Asia knows what Cambodians look like. We're brown, we're dark. But yeah, from there, it was great. We got to meet Prime Minister Abe before he retired. We got to go to the emperor's house, meet his wife, had dinners. Everything was catered. We got to meet all these Japanese officials. We debated in the Japan's House of Representatives. The Youth G20 Summit was the good, the bad, and the ugly of any foreign policy. There was a lot of hostility, but there was a lot of great moments. Um, and even what I tell even the new delegates coming in is the difference of what hard diplomacy and soft diplomacy plays. You know, at the time, you know, Steph Curry with the Golden State Warriors, they were playing the Raptors. So that was going on. And Germany and I, we we're adults. Talk, talking about basketball because I grew up playing AAU. So a lot of times, you know, uh, diplomacy isn't just all about hard negotiations. Sometimes you have to break down those barriers and talk about things that people like because that gets them to trust you, especially if you're trying to push a proposal. And at the time, the Canada delegate, we both had a love for Drake and Chris Brown. And at the time, um, No Guidance came out. So we were talking about that music video. So we made sure we talk about stuff that was going on in, you know, the diplomacy world when it comes to trade and tariffs and what number uh, the 45th administration was doing in the U.S. versus what was going on in pop culture, you know, and I think good, um, well-rounded people that tend to do well in diplomacy have those skill sets. And then there was one time in particular that I remember, it was uh, the delegate of Singapore. She wanted to learn a popular dance that African-Americans tend to be known for. And she asked South Africa and I to teach her how to do this dance. And I remember we were on the train and then Canada played a song that Juvenile is known for that starts with from the nine, nine in the 2000s on the train. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Uh, yes. 
So I just remember uh, us trying to teach um, this popular dance and it wasn't really working out, but just creating those types of memories that you can look back and laugh at. And then even being so proud of like the communicate because we all negotiated. We definitely had some tough moments and sometimes, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's, know what you're talking about as you're doing these hard negotiations, especially with countries that tend to be hostile towards you. But then towards the end of the Youth G20 Summit, Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs asked me to present at the United Nations High-Level Political Forum. We were presenting with the Princess of Saudi Arabia and the World Bank. So it was really great. But that was my experience with um, the Youth G20 Summit. That was incredible. You talked a little bit about, you know, the strength of our diversity. And I think that is one of the best things that America has is our diversity and what we bring to the table. Um, can you talk a little bit about why do you think it's so important for people of color to position themselves in a, in a global space? Um, yes, I think it's so important because diversity brings so much of a skill set that is really needed. Um, here in the U.S., you have everyone that can literally bring different solutions from different walks of life to solve some of the most pressing issues. And I think instead of just having someone from a typical foreign policy background, if you bring someone in from tech or someone in from the private sector, you know, we can literally bring everyone in to solve these issues because it affects all of us. So now we understand why it's important to position yourself. How does someone position themselves? If we're talking to someone that may be a high school student or a freshman at university that might be just starting at a clean slate, hasn't studied abroad, hasn't learned a foreign language. How does that student really start to position themselves for these opportunities that you've been able to uh, participate in? So the first thing that I would recommend is find what wakes you up in the morning, find your purpose, find what makes you happy, what drives you, and then and, and align that to a career that you seem fit or ha- at least have an idea, because as we all know, too, you know, the role of foreign policy, it's always changing. You're always finding something that you're interested in. And the second thing I will say is save your money, have your finances in order, because when you have go through your security clearances, you know, they're going to go and through your ins and outs. And then even just um, having the memberships to a lot of these organizations that you pay to get access to. Foreign policy, I always told everyone, it's an investment. You might pay for someone to go over your resume. You might pay to join an organization. You might pay to apply for an opportunity. Sometimes they're paid. Sometimes they're not paid. Sometimes you have to take on opportunities that aren't going to pay you as well. The third opportunity is, is just reach out, have your elevator pitch, have what your three skill sets are read materials that pertain to those areas and reach out to those individuals, whether you're meeting them on a Zoom call or whether you're seeing them on LinkedIn and just ask for an informational interview and and tell them like, this is what I'm looking to do. Do you have any recommendations? And then align yourself with opportunities as you find them, as you go and apply for them and just don't take no for an answer. When I think about your story, Vannery, the word that comes to my mind is overcomer. I think when I hear about your story, I think about having to overcome self-doubt or even doubt from outside, not just from inside, but you know, from professors and people who are in authority, overcoming racism, colorism, overcoming homelessness. And those moments where you were working three jobs and maybe you weren't getting the support you needed, what did you tell yourself to keep going? How did you fight through those feelings of, am I enough? Or maybe you felt inadequate. How did you push through? Um, So for one, I definitely 
prayed and I definitely uh, like definitely kept things up to date of what was important to me I know a lot of times especially with a lot of um Southeast Asians when they come here sometimes there tends to be a desensitization of what their like home culture is and so even just kind of like balancing that like those two um of being like my mom being Theravada and Buddhist and especially my my dad being Catholic, you know, um, I definitely made sure I stayed up to date with those and having that spiritual and holistic sense to keep yourself grounded. And then the importance of having a mantra and telling yourself that and putting it into your subconscious mind. And then I think it was just my surroundings. Like I just knew that I couldn't find, it couldn't be home anymore. Like I couldn't take no for an answer. I didn't know why, but just, well, what else is there if there's nothing else to offer me here? And just knowing that there was so much more to life. Now, speaking of mantras, I read somewhere that one of yours is trust your dopeness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, man. Oh, yes. That was um, one of my jobs that I had um, when I was kind of going through the homeless uh, phase was um, I used to model part time for black owned businesses I was really bit and it's interesting because like one of my areas of expertise is trade. So when you talk about um, advancing small to medium sized uh, enterprises into the global markets, that's what I was doing at a domestic level. So one of the lines was uh, know your dopeness. Indiana, Indianapolis has this event called the um, Indiana Black Expo, which highlights all the different businesses. And there's like a health fair and um, everything. And I remember walking in the IBE fashion show. And so I remember always saying that to myself. And I remember when I didn't have food, a lot of the boutique owners and designers would like embrace me. They would pay me and then they would also like feed me as well. But I would also have to kind of like know your self-worth. But yeah, that was one of my old mantras back in the day. <laughs> And what, what would be one now? What's your what's your mantra these days? What one is um, I love myself. I respect myself and I'm on my own journey because I know sometimes when we're in the foreign policy world, we tend to wish we're going a lot faster than what's going on, especially if you're trying to pursue like a political appointee process or if you're trying to undergo a security clearance, whatever the case may be, you have to I constantly have to tell myself that things are going to happen when they're supposed to happen. And you know, for that student that is still on the fence on whether or not they want to do that study abroad trip or learn that foreign language, and they're thinking about how can I leverage this? Like, are there jobs out there? Are there opportunities out there beyond college? What are some ways that a student can potentially leverage their international experience? Um, so one, there's so many youth organizations that are available to provide opportunities to students. You know, I definitely found in my own, the U.S. ASEAN Youth Council, and then there's United Nations Major Group of Children and Youth. There's so many youth organizations that provide an online platform for and train um, youth leaders at home on how to advocate for like UN sustainability development goals in their local communities. And that's pretty much the purpose. You know, there's Global Citizen, one, just joining organizations like that and just reading up on how to be a youth leader as well, because it's in all of us, especially for the African-American community, I feel like we're bred to be leaders because of the, hi the history we have in this country. And I would just honestly encourage that as well. And like I said, even from home, you don't have to be in the D.C. area to network with someone. Everything's virtual right now. You can get a, hop on a Zoom call, look someone up on LinkedIn and just ask them for a 15 minute virtual coffee. Vanner, as we wrap up this podcast, I definitely want you to highlight why does Asia matter? Why should people be looking toward 
Asia broadly and Southeast Asia, maybe even particularly uh, for the future or for opportunities or for jobs? Um, yes. So for one, they have, um, they're definitely one of the fourth largest GDPs. Um, definitely have a lot of emerging markets, whether it's in venture capital, tech, telemedicine, as well. Tourism is obviously a really big industry there as well. And then even just the history of Southeast Asia, when you start looking at the indigenous groups from the Melanesians to the Austronesians to the true Ankarians, where my family, that's where our descendants come from, where we were the true brown people, you know, we were the original blacks of Asia, you know, um, even when you look at um, me personally, I'm just going to briefly touch on this. When I went to Cambodia, um, like right after G20, I remember going to Phnom Penh and I went to go get some some pho, but I remember walking and when you when you looked at me, you look at the Belt and Road Initiative that's going um, on in Cambodia, in Southeast Asia through China, it reminded you of Selma, Alabama. They had a sign in Mandarin that said, it didn't say no colors, it said no Khmer, but you know, you get the point. And then there was still that segregation piece where the poverty gap was widening, all the brown people were um, or janitors or maids or, or, you know, cleaning. And then you had the Chinese Cambodians that had so much access to education and jobs and scholarships. So sometimes even for me, when I engage with them, they tell me all the time that I don't look Asian. And I said, well, you've been to, you know, you've been to Surak Khmer, you like, you know, you know that all the brown people are begging for money and food on the street. What do you mean? You know, and so read changing what beauty means, rechanging what access to education and jobs is like, it's really important to engage with Asia because we're slowly doing that here in the U.S. All right. As we bring the interview to a close, thank you so much for your time, your energy, your insight. This next question, which is the last question, you might have to think about a little bit, but just imagine they call your name. You go out in front of a stage of thousands of people. What is your anthem? What song do you want to come out to? Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. You can think about it. <laughs> Just want to know your oh, thing. it's by it's by the Carters, Beyonce and Jay Z. It's called Boss. It's called Boss. Give us a line. What I mean, you ain't got to sing it, but what what's the Boss? How, what what happens in Boss? What what makes you like that song? Oh, it's just the beginning. Um, when she says, "Ain't nothing to a real one," and she talks about working hard and just um, living it. First of all, having your paper right and then just living in your purpose. <laughs> right, for sure. Well, definitely, Vanner, anyone who would listen to this podcast episode would know that you are a boss and you will be a boss. And we are so happy that we had a chance to listen to your story. There were so many elements of it that we didn't know, but that we had a chance to enjoy. And so, ladies and gentlemen, keep up with this woman. Vannery Kong is on the move. As we go out, I think how it's going to play a little bit of the tune. What I grow. What I grow. <laughs> <laughs> Every sense you're not even close. <laughs>